This podcast is presented by the Prince George's County Memorial Library System. Hi, I'm Hawa. I'm Heather. I'm Hannah. And I'm Darlene. And this is our podcast, These Books Made Me. Today, we're going to be talking about how the Garcia girls lost their accents. Friendly warning as always, the podcast contains spoilers. If you don't yet know who gets a flat tire on the quest for fresh guava, proceed with caution. Also, this book contains discussions of mature topics, including sexuality, depiction of disordered eating slash institutional mental health treatment, racism, and child sexual abuse. And this episode is rated T for teen. So we're back this season with a really great book, and it's How the Garcia Girls Lost Their Accents. And I guess I just wanted to ask everyone, what does this book mean to you? This is another book that I discovered when I was in high school, suggested to me by a teacher that taught the multicultural literature class that I took in high school. I loved a lot of the other books we read in there, like Bless Me Ultima. And when I was looking for more things to read, he suggested Julia Alvarez to me. And I, I loved this book the first time I read it. It really resonates for me in a lot of ways and love it now. I really enjoyed doing the reread. I'm excited to talk about it with you all. So as always, uh, this is my first time reading this book. I really love a coming of age story. So for this to be kind of one that was like in reverse, um, I've never read anything like this. I can't believe this is the first time I've ever read a book by this author and it definitely won't be the last. So this falls into the category of the many, many books that I've heard wonderful things about and had yet to make time to read. So I was really glad for the chance to finally make time to read this the way they do the chronology and some of the really clever, beautiful, interesting things she does with language is really impressive. I really love this book. I think for the longest time, I would introduce it as my favorite book of all time. I think that's still the case. I was kind of like nervous to reread it because of that. I mean, even if one day it's no longer my most favorite, it's still probably the most important. Like I think that I can kind of divide my life into like how I read books before this book and then how I read them after because I'm not a big poetry person but I think this book opened my eyes to the fact that maybe I do like poetry it's just in a very particular sense and then before this I don't think that I really related to a lot of the books that um, I read so I read this in high school and I remember there was like a good three I think between 10th and 11th grade where it was just male authors and like male centered stories. And so it was like Lord of the Flies, a separate piece. I think the only female author that I read during that time was Joan Didion, who's great, by the way. I love her stuff too. But yeah, I was just really thankful to have read this book. And even though the experiences are not quite the same, I related to it enough in a way that I hadn't, you know, before. Just a quick plot summary. How the Garcia Girls Lost Their Accents is a reverse chronology coming-of-age novel that follows the lives of four Dominican sisters, Carla, Sandra, Yolanda, and Sofia, who emigrate to the United States during the Trujillo dictatorship in the 1950s. It weaves in details of their struggles of acculturation and personal identity and traces back to how being uprooted from their country, social position, and larger familial unit when they were younger, informed these struggles and feelings of displacement. So to pair with the plot summary, we wanted to give you a brief author bio for Julia Alvarez. Like the titular characters of her celebrated novel, How the Garcia Girls Lost Their Accents, Julia Alvarez is one of four daughters in a family from the Dominican Republic. She was born in New York City on March 17th, 1950, And that very same year, her family moved back to their native country. Fast forward 10 years, and her parents were forced to move their family back to the United States after supporting an unsuccessful attempt to overthrow dictator Rafael Trujillo. They made a new home for themselves in Brooklyn, New York in 1960. 10-year-old Alvarez struggled with the adjustment to a new country and a new language and sorely missed her former home. She would graduate with a bachelor's degree from Middlebury College in 1971 and then graduate again from Syracuse University in 1975 with a master's degree in creative writing. Alvarez has written poetry and essays as well as novels and is known for writing about the bicultural experience. How the Garcia Girls Lost Their Accents, published in 1991, was her first novel, but she is also known for 
In the Time of Butterflies, Yo, and In the Time of Salome. Alvarez also writes books for children, including the Tia Lola series, among others. She has been the writer-in-residence for Middlebury College since 1998 and a professor of English there since 1988. Alvarez's accolades include the Pura Bell Prix and America's Awards, the Hispanic Heritage Award, the F. Scott Fitzgerald Award, and the National Medal of Art. Okay, so this book is pretty dense. There's a lot to unpack here. I thought we could jump in sort of chronologically, even though that's reverse chronology because of the way that the book is written and start with Yolanda's return back to the Dominican Republic as an adult. And there's a bunch of things that jump off the page almost immediately. There's class issues, there's colorism. I think that was one of my issues when I was rereading it. Back then, I had no real like thoughts or opinions on like how a person should present certain issues. And so obviously, like I just loved the book. I don't think that I was very critical of it in any sort of way. But I think reading it now, I would keep thinking to myself that I wish that rather than just take on an operational role and just kind of telling the reader how a situation is, that there would be some sort of like critique of that sort of colorism and the classism because I guess something that we haven't explained yet is that the four sisters come from a well-to-do family in Dominican Republic. And that's why essentially they had to flee to the United States was because the dad was part of some underground movement, I guess, Aus Trujillo. It comes out at the end of the book, basically, that the CIA had sent agents and latched on to folks that were in the high class social status because they already had some connections. I think the one CIA agent went to Yale with one of the men in the book and sort of sponsored their attempts to overthrow Trujillo. Right. I think knowing that and then knowing how they act in relation to their maids and Alvarez does use very specific language to denote kind of the difference in their skin tones and then the way that they dress and the way that they act. And so it's mentioned and it's observed, but there's never really any sort of criticism about it and about like just the amount of wealth that they really get to enjoy, even as, you know, they may also be fearing this dictator and then the military state that follows after. But since then, I I think I did go back and just I kind of listened to some of her of Julia Alvarez's interviews because someone had asked if she had always intended to do novels with a sort of like social purpose. And she said that that was kind of like accidental. And she thinks that really her, I guess, influence would just be like seeing clearly it's very revolutionary. Or I guess that's how she would phrase it. And so she said that a quote that she really lives by is Chekhov saying that the task of the writer is not to solve the problem, but to state it correctly. And so I think her intention is never really to like solve or make any sort of judgments on what's going on, but rather present it to the reader and have the reader kind of make that assessment for themselves. So I guess when I looked at it with that perspective and just maybe that books around that time also took that perspective, I think I gave it a bit more (laughs) allowances. Thank you for giving that insight, because as I was reading it, I mean, there was nothing that really like the instances of colorism and classism and things like that. I think I kind of just read it as this is being presented as how it was for the time. Giving that insight kind of confirms that as opposed to just me making that assumption for the author. It was interesting to me because obviously the oldest that we see the characters is at the beginning of the book and then the youngest we see them is at the end. And I did feel that those issues do get addressed somewhat more at the end when they're younger, which is not the perspective they would have had as children. And she does that by letting us into internal lives of some of the characters that are on the other end of the spectrum from the Garcia family. So the maid, Chucha, who's been with them for a long time, we find out that she came to them as, you know, a refugee, basically, when the government decided to essentially slaughter all of the people who were Haitian who were in the Dominican Republic on the wrong side of the border at that time. And that included her entire family. She's taken in by the Garcias and there's some gratitude to them for that because she's a child when she comes to them. But there's also real bitterness there. And I think 
when she sees them having to flee, there is this sense that she knows what they're going to experience now because she also lost everything. She lost her family. She lost her home. She she gave up all of these things. I thought the depiction of Chucha at the end was really nuanced. You see her internal struggles and you see almost like the reverse negative of what you've seen from the family compound, right? Yes. You've gotten this really like shiny, beautiful, tropical, gorgeous setting and like all of these trappings of wealth. It's just very idyllic in many ways. The children have this wonderful childhood and that's not how it was for Chucha. So you see it from the eyes of somebody that's living in that same place, in the same surroundings, but is on the other side of the divide of wealth and poverty and is on the other side of the divide of light skin versus dark skin, Dominican versus Haitian. We at least have observational moments where you can see the totality of the picture a little bit more, but definitely true, like Darlene says, at no point in the book does she tell us what to think about that or or make any judgments on it. I do think she is a little bit more judgmental on some of the machismo stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if that's because that issue impacted her more directly, whereas the colorism especially is interwoven like, oh, Sandy's the pretty one because she's light, but it's not really judged in any significant way like the machismo is, where it's clearly that they're thinking less of these characters. And you're meant to think this character is foolish for acting like this. Yeah. I think the closest we get to judgment, like you mentioned with them talking about Chucha being the maid. I think they said something like her face was so dark and it was so scrunched up, almost like somebody tried to wring the black out of it. And I was just like, wow, that's very descriptive. But then you kind of, and then they describe her as being almost like this weird maid lady that nobody wants to be around because she has all these like voodoo ways. But and I think that's kind of the only judgment against that you kind of get well this is why she does it this is her spirituality this is how she feels about it and you hear her why it's important to her from her perspective so I thought that was interesting I did like that because then I think like Heather said you get the totality of it because even though yes the Garcias are now about to experience the same thing of having to flee their country they still do it with a leg up in the world, right? Like you can make the case that maybe they are starting from the bottom, but not really because they have a lot of help along the way. The Garcia girls' mom, Laura, she mentions that her dad is still helping them out and he has a lot of money. The Fannings are (laughs) helping with the job. Yes. Yeah. And then, and then obviously just all the education that they had access to before they moved to the United States just makes it that much easier for them to kind of move up. It's there for like the reader to kind of catch on and make their own judgments of it. But yeah, she doesn't have this outward dialogue about it. And I think that that's sort of what I was waiting for during the second reading, especially because colorism is a really big thing in the Latino community or the Latinx community. And I feel like for so long, I think people really negated it or would they would downplay it because they would say things like, no, we're like, we're all, you know, Latinos or Latinx. I feel like, yeah, there was just a lot of downplaying of Afro-Latinos and basically what they have to deal with. I thought for a bit that it was kind of more of the same. (laughs) Like, yeah, there's this colorism that does happen, but like, we just don't talk about it. And I think that's why I really wanted her to like say something more pointed about it. I did appreciate that chapter where we get Chucha's experiences because it kind of reminded me of kind of like taking Jane Eyre and White Sargasso Sea together. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Where like you get the main perspective from like the white presenting person or family and then you get the backstory of the person who from that main narrative is considered like an outsider or the crazy one or whatever and I then know, it humanizes we should them. totally do wide sargasso see someday that is that's maybe my favorite book ever oh really yeah so no much. it's great so one of the impressions that i get is colorism is talked about a lot it comes up repeatedly throughout the book people's appearance almost always mentions their skin color, whether they're dark, whether they're light. But you do get this sense, Yolanda, and maybe by extension, Alvarez is very much a product of that society and that environment. I almost feel like it's not commented on because it is so like hardwired in. So there's no judgment passed because that's just, it just is how it is in that world and that time that she lives in. Every single character basically remarks on it at some point. Carla with her hair growing in when she hits puberty is, you know, upset about visible leg hair. Kind yeah, that's of why thing. she didn't, she leaves the socks on yeah. or something like that. Her mom freaking out. Uh, one of the sisters uses hair removal cream and then her mom's <laughs> like, no, it's going to come back darker and is upset about that. 
her mom and Sandy being lighter, her being lighter skinned, Mamita being lighter skinned is is brought up a lot. And, and then she was family such that a, comes from Sweden or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like but that's great, like Sandy is great lighter. grandmother that looked, you know, that was Swedish. Poppy brings up the like conquistador blood game where he like holds them upside down to like make them say if they have like uh, the blood of the conquistadores yeah. in them. Yeah, that was angering. I was like, no. <laughs> yeah, it just comes in so often. Gladys, the other maid that wants to be an actress. I don't know. That I was one. trying to pick up on if she was that black, but I think I was moving too fast. That's why I wasn't sure. She, she's at least darker skinned. Yeah. darker skinned. That character just broke my heart because then they like sent her away about the bank and it was like totally not her fault. Yeah. And they did that even after they knew it wasn't her fault. And but like her wanting to be an actress is like so dismissed. And it felt like that was because of the color. It's like, well, come yeah, on. He was like, yeah. yeah, maybe she'll end up in New York. And you said that. And I'm like, come on, yeah. you don't mean that. And it's like he started off by saying, oh, well, she'll find somewhere else better. But then you just try to make it seem like, oh, well, no, she left on her own. Like, And, and, and the kids know that that's not a, true. Yeah, they pick up on like, it. They yeah. know like she's not going to make it in New York. That's not what an actress would look like, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I mean, even uh, Sophia's uh via marrying a german mm -hmm. a guy from germany and then having a child with him and then it says there's like a direct quote that's like there was now good blood in the family yeah. against a future bad choice by one of its women which i didn't actually quite understand because i don't know that it told us what that bad choice would I eventually mean, I be i think that the idea was like there would still be a lineage of because the baby is described as like blonde and blue-eyed and mm -hmm. that baby's light enough that like at least there would still be a line of the family that's light even if the girls in the family ran off with dark men mm -hmm. you know it, it just ugh. yeah that was very cringy when they talked about sandra one thing that i took note of was when they talked about sandra and i think they were doing the interview with her her therapist or her doctor or whatever when they wanted to have her committed and they basically made it seem like oh well she just was losing weight and that's why they wanted to have her committed and then the mom was like well you know she started to put on some weight. So, you know, it was kind of needed. But then, you know, she's like the lighter colored one and she wants to be dark like her sisters. Like, what's wrong with her? Like, mm -hmm. that was I was like, mom pretty much just straight up said it was just like, yeah, this is the ideal. And she doesn't want to be the ideal. That's strange. Yeah. Well, and Laura also said when she was talking to the guy that she picks up at the nursery, which is just so funny. <laughs> I, I actually really love the mom. I just love I that she too. just picks up men. They early. said she was fresh. Yeah, <laughs> she's such a great character. And like her stories are funny. Yeah. I know that woman. Yeah. Like it's like, oh, that's my friend's mom. Like, yeah. I immediately was like, I know this person. But she makes the comment about like how she knows like Sometimes babies look light-ish when they come out, but they change. That she can tell by looking by, at a baby if they're going to stay light or not. Ugh. Yeah, you always say you you can look at the tips of the ears and you see the the baby's complexion. <laughs> Which I'm just like, why are we even checking for that? Like, yeah. why can't it just be? You know. <laughs> yeah, but it does that often. I think it's sort of this idea that they're people with privileges and you know i think it acknowledges that they all have privileges in several ways and yet you know they still suffer in their own ways sometimes because of those privileges right like sandy feeling like she actually stands out more mm -hmm. because she isn't of a darker complexion like her sisters it i think it's made mention about how they should have everything in the world right like happy provided for them everything and yet they're so dissatisfied with something and kind of like always searching for something We've been talking a lot about how it colorism within the Dominican community that's depicted in here, but it, like it's all everywhere in the yeah. book because even Rudy in the chapter about Rudy, oh which my also God. is like <laughs> that whole chapter is so wild. Yeah, <laughs> I still don't know how to pronounce his name. Like I think every time I, re I like this is my second time rereading it, and I think like I just skip over his name. I just know he it's has like three Rudy names. something Elmenhurst the third. Yeah, but. You know, obviously, like, he's presented as the whitest white guy ever. He's a trust fund baby. Rudolph he, Broderman Elmenhurst III. Yeah, he has yeah. this <laughs> familial I name. I still not remember. You know, he's a prep school kid. <laughs> but at the point that things really, like, start to break down between him and Yolanda, he basically comes out and says, well, like, because you look Latin, I just assumed once I could, like, get you into bed, you were going to be wild. But he makes this assumption because of her coloring and, like, because of her accent, her being yeah. 
a certain way. Yeah, there are those stereotypes. Yeah. I mean, it it comes up in like pop culture all the time. In one of my classes, which was like Latinos in pop culture, the hot-blooded Latina is a really strong stereotype that has been going on since maybe like 30. There's like a lot of I didn't realize it went back that far. Yeah, it goes back that far. And I think before it used to be like Spanish actresses, like from Spain, that has history embedded in it. I mean, when he said that, I was like, of course. Yeah. It sucks because then I guess just kind of going off of him real quick, like his parents saying saying that like they wanted him to date a Spanish girl because it should be interesting for him to find out about other Other people from other cultures. And I was like, what? Yeah. I love that she straight up said like it bothered me that they treated me like a geography lesson for their son. But she also expressed that. You know, she back then she didn't have the vocabulary to ex, uh, to explain to herself what annoyed her about that. So she's kind of looking back like, <laughs> dang, that was kind of really messed up. And it, and I think in certain ways, like even things that I've experienced in my life that have come across that that I look back on, I realize now we're like, yeah, that was that's, that's kind of racist. Like, but <laughs> yeah, at the, the time, when, especially when you're younger, like she's a maybe like what a freshman in college, a sophomore in college, mm-hmm. still figuring things out, and learning about herself. She wouldn't have had the vocabulary to express those things or even maybe felt some type of way about it. Yeah. Their experience with racism in their earlier years at that point has been like very overt, right? Mm -hmm. It's like slurs. The boys are like throwing things at Carla and basically attacking her while they're calling her racial slurs. Now she's seeing what like woke racism looks like, right? Right. And it's like, oh, well, I'm attracted to you or I want to get with you. So I can't possibly be racist because Mm -hmm. I'm viewing you in this, which you should take as a a great light. Like you should be honored that I want to have sex with you. Yeah. She's like a merit badge he can put on like his Boy Scout uniforms. Yeah. Look how great our son is going after the Spanish girl, which drives me crazy, too. How many times people are described as Spanish and it's like, they're not from Spain. I know. (laughs) Yeah, that bothered me, too. (laughs) Let's head into the discussion about (laughs) toxic masculinity in this book. Men do not come off well here, except for maybe Otto. Yeah. Otto seems like a pretty cool dude. Oh, he's just like jovial. What did they say? Did they say he looked like a young Santa Claus? Yes! Oh, and he's like the peacemaker. Yeah, I love Otto. No, he's so a cute. delight. And I was like so happy for Fifi that she found somebody that seems like a sweetheart and like very smart and cares for her. She did what made her happy. But woo, none of the other guys in the book come off well her, at all. Her dad was real mad that uh she she went beyond the palm trees. Oh, he was mad about those letters. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that scene is like, that scene hits so well because you really can see it. Yeah. Oh my she God, She has yeah. a very cinematic way of writing. Yeah. These interpersonal moments with the family, like so many of these scenes you can just visualize so well. Like that scene with the letters where he is freaking out and she's trying to grab him back and she's yeah. so hurt because those are her personal things. The tearing up the essay that Yolanda wrote. Yes. Mm. The party where Yolanda is doing musical chairs and sitting on all of the men because she's had too much to drink yeah. and then they break the chairs. Or even in like the very beginning when she describes the 70th birthday party for the dad and I guess because, you know, him and Sophia are like beefing and he's guessing all the daughters but he's not guessing Sophia's name so she she like licks his ear and kisses him and he's just like, okay, party's over. Yeah. I was yeah. like, wow, that just felt so yeah. end scene. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like she described him so well that I feel like I got a sense of who he was because Going back to that scene about when he finds the letters, it was saying like he was like all fury and then he was like in Sophia's face. And because she was so impassive, because obviously, you know, there's like a strength to her mm-hmm. behind her eyes um, that that made him even more angry. And yeah, going back to what Heather said about how like cinematic that is, like I could picture that. And then for the 70th birthday, he understands kind of like that he is getting older and he's basically looking around the room and seeing Basically, that his daughters don't really need him anymore. He's feeling like a little like useless. I think they had made mentions of him looking a little frailer. Uh, yeah, I just feel like you really got into his headspace during that time. And he's, he's judging all of uh, their husbands and being like, yeah, none of them have have the strength to really be there for his daughters. He was okay with, with Otto. 
He was okay with that moment where he like slapped Otto on the back kind of thing. And you could <laughs> see that too, but it was because Otto still, gave him a boy grandson. Yeah. Right. But he also said that Otto, he said even Otto, the famous scientist, is a boy or something like that. Like he still thought of them as just these childish young men that could never like. I did feel that was ironic coming from him, though, because he's incredibly childish yeah. in the book, <laughs> like at many points. Yes. He does try to like make reparations after he blows up. He buys the typewriter for her after he destroys her essay. In the moment, he is very temperamental. He's very temperamental. Almost everything is about him. The girls are largely just a reflection of him. So it's always through that lens. The good bulls sire cows that keeps mm-hmm. coming Yeah, I jumped that down too. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but even just, I guess, like, still talking about, like, just the sexism, the machismo in it, and then, like, the women's role, there was, like, a really interesting line, and this is when Sophia, I think, is still trying to make amends, and she feels like she has to bridge that gap, even though he was really the one that took it way too far. He said, like, every year after that, the daughter came for her father's birthday, and in the way of women, soothed and stitched and patched over the hurt feelings. So it was almost like because she was a woman, it was her duty to really patch mm-hmm. the like sore spot between them, even though he was really he the was one the cause. that, yeah, he was the one that invaded her privacy, went into her drawer, said that what he was looking for nail clippers and then found her letters, read them in detail. And then, uh, yeah, it was in her face, like yelling to her. On the issue with, with machismo throughout the book, the women are presented as stronger than the men. Mm-hmm. I mean, really at every step of the way, even when the women are referred to as frail in some way. Poppy essentially says that he worries about Laura in the situation where the secret police basically show up and the the military show up at their compound, that she can't keep her nerves together for it. And Chucha also comments that Laura's always had like basically been frail, like she's weak nerved kind of thing. But we never see that. Laura's incredibly strong. She's the one that holds it together while he's hiding in the closet. And I think that that's really a theme throughout is that the men are very dismissive of the women at many points. But the women are the ones that are keeping things together. And like, they're the clever ones. They're the ones that are like really driving the action for the family, for their lives, like they're the organizers. There's like a real strong circle of power for the women in the family. Um, And I I think that's an interesting, again, she doesn't make like commentary like that, particularly. She's not telling us what to think about that, but the way that she observes all of the characters and what we see of them, even though they certainly have fragilities. I mean, we see two of the sisters have, you know, breakdowns to the point that they have to be hospitalized but they're still all presented as very strong individuals mm-hmm. and in many ways stronger than the men. Yeah. And I wrote down this quote and I, it kills me that I can't remember like whose story this was from, but it says how we lie to ourselves when we've fallen in love with the wrong men. And I was just like, wow, that I read that line. I was just like, wow, this is so poetic. <laughs> Oh, was but that Yolanda? I really wish I were, you said what? It sounds like something Yolanda would I was say. say. I think probably because she was just so, and I also enjoyed that about the book. Like she was the poet and when she spoke, it felt extra poetic. Yeah. Because, you know, she had her fair share of guys that were trash. I think in the beginning, we find out that she's just uh, getting over her, her breakup, I guess, with the the college professor who went back to his wife or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I like that this book is in reverse chronological order, but sometimes it did have me wondering more about like what was going on, like currently in their lives. Um, especially because we talk about how trash a lot of these men, men are. And I think at the beginning of the book, they're still pretty young. Like they're like the thing, the youngest was like in their twenties and the oldest was like in their thirties or something like that. Yeah. Early in the book, the range is like 26 to 31. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, yeah, going off of just talking about like their strength, I really liked, I want to say the whole chapter was on Laura and like her little inventions. Mm -hmm. I thought that was so beautiful. Yeah. 
first off, she could have been the one to have done rolling luggage <laughs> and no one believed her. Well, even her double-walled <laughs> sippy cup is a thing now. Yeah, like, and, she was, <laughs> and the potty that when the kid pees and sings, that yeah. plays music, that's a thing too. That's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they all sounded like wonderful inventions, but I just thought that it was so interesting because if you're talking about like the strength of like women, but also like within their family unit, I mean, yeah, she really held it down for the girls. And, you know, she would often like play it to sympathy. She would be like, well, you guys just don't know what it was like to like have four girls. That's why I had to color code your stuff. Like, don't talk to me about identity. Um, <laughs> You're going to make me go to Bellevue. Yeah, <laughs> she started yeah, that, yeah that was her favorite threat. Um, but yeah, I thought that that was a beautiful chapter because then at the end, you know, she does... Uh, you know, she stops doing these little inventions. You know, she says that she's no longer uh, going to be, you know, writing in her little notepad or whatever. But she said her last final or Yolanda remarks that her last final send off is helping her create the speech that mm-hmm. she would eventually that Yolanda would give to. Um, what was it? At the school. Yeah. Commencement. Yeah. And so I don't know. I just thought that was beautiful. Like, you know, she that she does take like a step back when um and kind of like really uplift her daughters whenever she can and that i think that's why she was probably one of my favorite like at least between the parents was definitely my favorite um Mm -hmm. oh absolutely because she was just so supportive like even the fact that i mean she doesn't really know her daughters that well in some cases but in some sense she really does but how she would always go to all of yolanda's like poetry readings and yolanda would be like very embarrassed um, and she was like, yeah, um, you know, because he talked about her sexual encounters in her poetry and the mom, she's like, I don't know. If she just like doesn't understand that or she thinks it's just my wild imagination, but she's supportive nonetheless. So, yeah, there's like that quiet strength that you're talking about where it's not like that obvious, but really like she really holds it down for that family. She shows up to the poetry readings without even like being invited. Like she's oh, yeah. she 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 when she's like trying to hide it and she still shows <laughs> up and-, and she's like sitting in the front row telling a story with like her her professor slash lo- her professor. Her yeah, and and yeah. she has no idea that's who she's talking to and they're waiting for the event to start and everyone's just like sitting listening to her. Well, she'll talk to anyone. Like she picked up that guy at the nursery. So yeah. Like- <laughs> That was also a very cinematic scene. Like I could see it cut in between the Yolanda being embarrassed and her mom being enthusiastic. Like that could be a very funny scene in a movie. I did want to talk a little bit about um, Yolanda and the poetry. Darlene mentioned it when she was talking about what the book meant to her that like mm-hmm. she didn't really think like she was super into poetry and this book kind of changed her mind on that. Her being a poet definitely works into her longer fiction in that way. We saw that with Cisneros as well. Both of them have a very poetic feeling to their writing that I think is is pretty unusual for long form prose. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. I think I had many thoughts on it because I feel like that's what really made me gravitate towards this book. I think before, like when I remember, I remember when I was first reading it and just kind of going through it. And yes, I really liked it. But I think once I got to Yo's chapter, I think that's when it specifically kind of hit me, like just how much, just how rich language could be and how you could kind of use this really poetic language to really describe what you were feeling. Because what stuck out was that scene where she is like in the hospital and there's like that scene about like the blackbird, like trying Mm -hmm. to come out of her. And it was just like so poetic. And I feel like that's the kind of thing that I would have probably not responded well to in a book before, but she brought it like around in such a like wonderful way because it tied to when she was younger and her mom made her recite um the poe yeah the poe um annabelle lee i think was the poem she did but yes that's presumably she's like the man that wrote about the blackbird yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah so yeah so just the way that she ties all of that and just essentially trying to say that there's just so much that she wants to get out that she just really cannot really get out And I think that's the scene where essentially she really wants to tell her doctor that she has fallen in love with him and she can't. And it was just a really striking scene that I think to this day, like still is vivid in my mind. And that's when I knew like, oh, yeah, language could be so vivid that like even years later, even though I mix up things like all the time, like that's still so fresh in my mind. I think all of her anytime. Yeah, like I was said, like anytime it was Yolanda's chapters, I feel like that was just very memorable. And I I thought it was really interesting 
that she had so many hangups about her name. So her name has a lot of different nicknames. So people call her, her full name is Yolanda, but people call her Yo, Joe, or Yo-Yo. And she said when she gets keychains or whatever, she gets them for Joey because there's no <laughs> Yolanda. I, I just found it really interesting that in one of the first chapters that really focuses on her, yeah, she does meet Rudy, who has like three names and is the third and has like this whole like history behind his name. Yeah, then we find out that as a character, like she feels like, yeah, name is like really important to your personal identity. And she's been struggling really to find that because of, yeah, because of her family and just being uprooted from from the Dominican Republic and just everything that's happened in her life. She's never really felt like she's been able to claim her name. And wasn't she the one that was married to that guy who basically called her everything but her name? Yeah. yeah. And then he had Joe. that pro Joe, Violet. Yeah. Violet. Yeah. I was like, okay. And then he had that pro con <laughs> list as to whether or not he should marry her. And she found it. It was just like, yeah, this is not working. Yeah. And Laura, too, though. Sorry. She did have that little line about how um, when she first came to the United States and she like enunciated her last name and no one knew what it meant. She's like, that's OK. You guys will find out what it means one day. Yeah. Because <laughs> but yeah she's a Della Torre. And that yeah. was like her family's very prominent. And she came here and nobody cared. Yeah. Whereas like dropping that name when she was back home, everybody would have. Oh, oh, let me get something for the mm-hmm. lady. Let me take care of this. Let me drive you here. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there's the part where she's with her sisters and I think they call her by one of her nicknames. And then one of her sisters says she wants to be called Yolanda now. And she's like, what do you mean? I want to be called that. Like, that's now. my name. Like, she, just, <laughs> yeah. she goes off on them. And I was just like, <laughs> yeah, oh the, sister, the sisterhood dynamic is so funny because I'm like, yeah, that could be you and your sisters. Oh, like, absolutely. you take things offensively, <laughs> even though that's not how they meant it. Yeah. yeah. And that's that who you could be the most truthful with. Yeah. It's so funny. Just the four of them interacting together and seeing them in the roles they have with each other, the roles that they see themselves in. It's really, really well drawn. It's super nuanced and not a whole lot of pages. You know, it's a couple pages of dialogue, but it's so revealing about all four of them yeah. in a short space. It's really beautifully done. We haven't really talked too much about their journey once they got to the U.S. We've alluded to it a few times, but I think one of the big pieces of this book is the the experience of assimilating. I mean, even even the title relates to that about how the Garcia girls lost their accent. I think it's so interesting because um, it always makes me think of how my parents always say, like, you know, they came to this country that their kids could have like a better life. And it's interesting because it's like all these girls go on like their different paths that are probably, they're not terrible, but their parents probably would have wanted something different for them. And and they kind of express that in a way. They they feel like their daughters are being bad girls. Uh, I think when they're teens, they get sent back to the Dominican Republic. I think they said they, they would send them every summer to try to... Uh, for the whole every summer for the whole summer and that was their thing they were like does it have to be for the whole summer and the mom's like what are you guys doing i guess get them kind of in touch with that culture so i thought that was interesting that kind of is what that made me think of i grew up in an immigrant household i was born here so i didn't like fully i guess relate to every aspect of it right because i i was um i was born here but I just thought it was really interesting the way that she talked about it. And Julie Alvarez has talked about her experiences growing up between these two cultures. That's why she called it. I think the, how the Garcia girls lost her accents because she did say that in the process of like migrating somewhere and then like assimilation or acculturation, whichever I guess you ascribe to, um, you do lose something along the way. She does try really hard to kind of explain I guess, like, how you end up being in that sort of middle space. She did mention about, it was still that chapter with Rudy and Yolanda. And basically, she was like, you know, I too would be having sex and smoking dope. I too would have, like, suntan parents who looked me, or wait, sorry, who took me skiing in Colorado over Christmas break. And I too would say things like no shit without feeling like I'm imitating someone else. I thought that was really powerful because, even though at that point she has been there for a few years, there's just certain things about American culture that just doesn't feel hers. And so she's like still navigating it. And that's 
that's still within, I think she's in college at that point, but even into adulthood, right? Because Yolanda is the one that wants to go back to the Dominican Republic. So again, like navigating her position within these two cultures. And you see that throughout the whole book with the other sisters as well, and kind of where they situate themselves within those two points. It is one of those books like Mango Street that really deals with those sort of the liminal space of being neither but both Mm -hmm. simultaneously and how the characters navigate that. So you see it from sort of all angles. The one who seems to really navigate both spaces the best in many ways is Fifi. Yeah. And maybe because she's the baby, but like then she's, you know, she goes back to Dominican Republic and she's like immediately like got the hair and she's like got the boyfriend and she's integrated herself into that society very easily in a way that the other sisters seem to struggle more on both ends. I thought that whole thing was uh, funny because it's like they get up, the sisters get off the plane because their sister has been there for like six months at this point and they're just mm-hmm. like, wait, is she, has she turned, basically almost like, has she turned on us? And then they meet her and they realize that she has a boyfriend and they devise this whole plan to basically like get her in, almost kind of get her in trouble because they know that she's getting herself into some stuff that she probably shouldn't be. Yeah, the mom thought that sending her back would do this. And they're like, well, you can't really get the American out of them or something like that. Yeah, like, she thought sending her back <laughs> would protect her from bad choices. But then she goes there and she immediately makes a bad choice and a guy and... <laughs> is getting herself into the same kind of trouble she would have gotten herself into in the States. So like that to me also was, uh, you can't change who someone is at their core. And Fifi is Fifi. She is with one guy and she's like, yeah, you kind of suck. Never mind. And she immediately. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, finds out she's pregnant and goes to Germany and just shows up at his doorstep. He's like, you know, we're going to make this work. And <laughs> she just really is very true to herself, no matter mm-hmm. where she is. I think everything else is just almost like window dressing on her. Yeah. She can look the part there. She can look the part here. But it's always her. Mm-hmm. And I think the other sisters really struggle with their like self-identity more. Like, who am I? Yeah. Seems much more of a, a struggle for them. Yeah. Um, Bibi is so strong-willed. I, I wonder... If, I mean, like you said, it is because she's younger, but also she didn't spend that much time in Dominican Republic. And I think that that kind of helped her in a way because the other sisters do get chapters on kind of like a pivotal moment in their young childhood life. And they're all in the Dominican Republic for the most part. And these are like things that really like fundamentally changed them mm-hmm. um, or affected them in some way. And yeah, I don't think that Fifi has that. No, and, she was like a toddler when they left. It yeah. Like. And so I think there is like a part where she says that she doesn't really remember as much and that some things are, you know, she pieces together from other people's stories. But I think it ties into the fact that I want to say it's Yolanda or maybe maybe it's just the author, like speaking of Sophia, saying that like she has no degrees, like there's no like history there. And I think that because of that, she can kind of chart forward. Yeah, there's nothing that she's like beholden to, like a degree or anything that like people are like, oh, that's a wasted opportunity. It's like there was nothing laid out for her. So she kind of paved her own way. I mean, I do think that's always different for the youngest. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't say that it's easier, but I think the young, younger children, the family sometimes, I think the parents have maybe abandoned some of the strict paths they were laying out for the older kids or amended them, or maybe the younger are benefiting a little bit from the older children's experience. Younger or youngest are given kind of a freer space to figure out who they are and what they want to do. No, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I've seen that play out like in my own family and in other families. And I think also it's funny because in the book, they, they sit around talking about, I think they sit around talking about their quote unquote, their sins and what, all the things that they've kind of been up to. And I the oldest sibling that said, like, you know, I ha- I kind of had to do a little bit more to give you all some leeway, pretty much. <laughs> like, that's not exactly what she said, but it's basically what she said. And it makes sense because I think about my family and I think that, you know, my older sister, she was able to, you know, kind of do a lot. And I think that if my older sister had like different values or if she was like more of a closed-minded person that that would have had an impact on all of us as well so sis i know you're not listening but if you are shout out to you <laughs> for paving the way but what no, do you it mean is, she's like... not listening of course. <laughs> as the older sister she's very supportive i'm sure you're absolutely right <laughs> i'm gonna send her the episode <laughs> 
But yeah, no, as the older sister, I'm also, I told that to my sister all the time. I'm like, you guys have it so easy. (laughs) So yeah, you don't even know. (laughs) All right. Do we have anything else that we didn't touch on during discussion that we wanted to touch on? We didn't end up touching on the, the, the guy in the car and Carla. We did give a trigger warning about uh, that. So I Uh, guess we could talk about that scene. I, I We've so, all been there. Yeah. Like, yeah. I feel like every girl has like, oh God, like that just, that hit like so hard. Cause it's like, everybody has had that like horrible experience yeah. with a man. Way too young. <laughs> and it, it was, it was sad. Cause like, you know, she runs home and they call the police and they're trying, she's trying to explain to the police what happened and her mom's trying to speak for them. Um, and we don't really get a gist of what happened after they left, of course, but it, it kind of made me feel like, and I could be over, overthinking it, but it kind of made me feel like, you know, they called the police and they tried to explain to the police what happened. The police are trying to put together bits and pieces and they kind of just maybe didn't take it as, not that they didn't take it as seriously, but I feel like there was definitely no follow up and um and I don't know necessarily if it was because you know that they're this immigrant family so they're not really you know they're like they're not getting they feel like they're not getting the full story and they don't want to keep asking or and they feel like maybe there's some kind of like language barrier um and I know that like in the past I know that like even experiences that like um that have happened in the past, like just dealing with authority figures or people who, uh, you know, are from a different culture. My mom has often felt like, you know, people may not be taking what she's trying to say as seriously because of the accent or the language barrier. Um, and it kind of felt like that's what happened in this situation. Yeah, um, it was weird because the initial like um, call to the police was presented pretty positively. I thought at least with the police, like they came in they're like, yeah, for sure. We don't want people like that on the street doing this to our kids. And yeah. like, they seemed very like raring to go and get this guy. But then like when there was any sign of communication breakdown, they just kind of like were like, this is too hard. Never mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I guess, you know, they, they tried to get as much of the story out as they could and they just, you know, couldn't. But I guess also like she 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 kind of was really just learning English. So she's trying to grasp mm-hmm. those words to try to describe what happened to her. And also just she's also probably like traumatized by what she had just experienced. Yeah. It wasn't just like, oh, a bunch of racist police officers showed up. It was just like there's a lot of just really lazy people and they showed up and it was not exciting. Let's go get the bad guy. It actually took work and they just kind of like, eh, never mind. And and how that makes then the person on the other side of that feel where she just was like, Oh, I guess I'm stupid. I guess no one cared. You know, like it just, she felt like work instead of a person. She Mm -hmm. felt like, you know, a burden instead of the victim there. And that's, that sucks regardless of why, why they did that. You know, I thought it was an interesting depiction of that um, scene. Cause again, it was just very observational. It didn't really feel like there was a lot of judgment being put on it by, the author but trying to like make the judgment for myself it was like i'm not i don't know what happened here but this wasn't good you know like trying to figure out why did it break down and well there was i mean not just the language barrier like she was even if english was her first language or she was completely fluent it she's describing something very awkward there's Mm, a, a lot of stuff she probably doesn't fully understand yeah, I mean, she wouldn't have even had words in Spanish for a lot of it because that, like, anatomically correct doll that uh, Mundine had, yeah. it, it, it shattered, shattered yeah. It, like, had livers and kidneys and stuff, yeah. and then it was, like, a Ken doll. Like, it just was missing. Right. But, yeah, I was thinking, like, I don't think that even in Spanish she would have had the language to explain herself. No. And, yeah, I did think that the police officers were like very impatient, but I also think that they weren't making allowances that I feel like they would have made for like anyone else. You mentioned that she could have just spoken through her mom, whose but they English is down. a little better. Yeah, because Laura was trying to yeah. like explain to them what she had told her, and they're mm-hmm. like, no, 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 and like, and I'm like, oh, she's a child who's been through like, a traumatic she, experience. Yeah, she can't tell you like she doesn't have the language for that, and like we did. There's another scene. At one point, she said, like, the word that she had for male anatomy at that point was appear. Like, she had clearly Mm -hmm. been given no language for it. But, like, she said something like, 
it was what I called a fear in my head or something like that. There was no sex ed, obviously, in this family. Yeah. Like, that's very clear. Yeah. Um, in the book, the like go behind the palms thing is like <laughs> the like the extent the of Catholicism. Yeah. Catholic guilt. Yeah. So there is that that was a barrier. Then the language on top of that, where she's struggling with like describing the person vividly enough that they could identify. She couldn't even him. say he was bald. She was like, oh, he didn't have anything on his head. And the guy's like, a hat. no hat. Yeah. <laughs> like, no hair. Yeah. But then it's also like one of those things, which I think is very true of like a moment of trauma or just shock is like, no, she probably wasn't really paying attention to what the guy looked like, because at the point that she realized that like he's masturbating and he's got all his junk out in the open, she's fixated on the things she's never seen before. That's right. scary. Like everything else has gone away because at that point you're just in like, oh, I got to get out of here mode. This is horrible. That's what you're seeing. That's what she's going to remember from that. Not yeah. like, oh, the guy was this old and this tall and this, you know. It's like, why would I be taking note of all those details? Exactly. Or the car. Like, he's not thinking about the make and model of the car. Yeah. He's yeah. Like, what the heck is happening? This season, with the help of our teen volunteers, we'll be heading into the stacks and talking to you. Well, not you, but people like you right here in the library. Today, we want to know what's the one food that reminds you of home? Uh, what food makes you feel most at home? Mm. Chipotle. Is that weird? <laughs> no, that's fine. I love Chipotle. It's like comfort food. The first time I came to DC, I was at a basketball game. We all got Chipotle. Loved it ever since. <laughs> I'd say curry beans. Probably baleadas. Or pasteles. Chicken and dumplings. May I ask why? Um, my grandmother used to make it, um, usually just as a surprise before I would come home from school. Um, and it's just a very warm and it's a very heavy dish. But, you know, when you're having a bad day or even a good day, it's a, a nice way to wind down. Probably beans because I, that's what hosts me, like, like everything in my house. Pupusas. I used to be, my mom would used to make some good ones when, when I was younger. She doesn't make them that much anymore, but... She used to sell them on the weekends and she would give me a bunch. It was amazing. I could eat like nine at a time. Steak with rice. Homemade. I would say tamales. Pozole. Because uh, my dad makes it and uh, he makes it really well. I don't have a favorite food, but my mama's cooking is my favorite. I love my mama. Tacos. But why? Because they're good. We call it tamal dulce. It's sweet tamal and it's really good. You put sugar in the curry chicken and rice. Well, for me, it's probably fried chicken and french fries since my mom used to make it when I was little. And she still makes it to this day, which is like the best chicken I've ever had. Um, they're called pupusas. Uh, the person who makes it was be mostly my mom. She's the one that makes them best. I enjoy them really much. So the food that brings me closest to home is, I'm from Jamaica, my family's from Jamaica, so our favorite food that we eat over there is dumplings with sawfish and ackee. So that's, that brings me closest to home because it's a part of my culture. We have designed our very own BuzzFeed quiz. <laughs> yes, first ever. These books made me BuzzFeed quiz designed by us, for us, and for you. <laughs> Learning off season three strong. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to point out that BuzzFeed has a disclaimer on the page going, this post has not been vetted or endorsed by BuzzFeed's editorial staff. <laughs> but it has been vetted and endorsed by us. Exactly. <laughs> so, That's what matters. <laughs> we are bringing you high quality bonus content. This quiz is called, Which Garcia Girl Are You? Are you going to take it? I'm not. I wrote the quiz. Oh, oh yeah. Duh. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. <laughs> in your family friend group you are the life of the party overthinker mother hen bossy one or free spirit for me i'm the overthinker for sure yeah same i kind of (laughs) i i kind of know who sophia is i was like i want to be sophia but i'm not a sophia i don't think (laughs) (laughs) yes overthinker what is your dream job mother dancer inventor psychologist or author honestly low-key none of these 
But at one point, I did want to be a psychologist. But also, I like to read to that. But I don't want to ever write anything. So I think I chose author. I think once upon a time, <laughs> that was a dream. I'm going to be a complete wild card and pick adventure. Okay. Interesting. I would have thought dancer. I for thought you. so too. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't be too. You know, I have, I have to be unexpected. <laughs> I think a dancer is a hard life. I like to do it recreationally. That's understandable. <laughs> Which word best describes you? Vivacious, talented, original, assertive, or nurturing? <laughs> original? Mm, nurturing. I think I can be kind of nurturing. I think I'm going to go with nurturing as well. I'm going to go with original. as <laughs> That was my second. I was like, I'm reading original and I'm thinking, okay, I'm kind of weird. So that could, does that make me original? Like, <laughs> <laughs> There's only one holla. <laughs> Thank yes, you. Exactly. <laughs> Your biggest fear is not being respected, losing yourself, being alone, losing control, or losing the ones you love. Ooh, that's hard. I'm very much torn between being alone and losing the ones you love because they're both things that I feel like have been on my mind a lot recently, which sounds kind of dark. <laughs> I'm going to say being alone. Losing control. I feel like the ones I gravitate towards are like opposing. It's either losing the ones you love or losing yourself. Those are the two that I would be torn between too, yeah, darling. <laughs> Uh, I think the bigger one is losing the ones you love, though, for me. Okay, and which image appeals to you the most? The first one is two people embracing in front of a sunset. The second one is two little girls who look like sisters laughing and sitting next to each other. The third is a red sports car. The fourth is a typewriter mm -hmm. and the fifth is a very neat and clean and organized library full of books. Um, well, I'm going to be that obvious librarian and pick the one with all the books. It's so like when y'all <laughs> take this quiz, because you have to take the quiz, you'll see how beautiful this library is arranged. Like this would be a dream to have in my own home. It's a super cool looking library. <laughs> Not even to work at. You're like, I want this in my house. Yeah, no. It's very dangerous, though, because I don't think the stairs have rails. <laughs> so I'm, like, I'm just like, I'm looking at it and thinking all of the incident reports uh, you would have to write. When you hear people falling yeah, by the stairs. Really. Yeah, I feel okay. like before working at a library, I never thought about that. And then now I pass by libraries and I'm like, that must be a pain to close up. Yes. <laughs> There's too many doors. <laughs> too many floors. You got to check every nook and cranny to make yeah. sure that everybody's gone. <laughs> All right. What did everybody get? Wait, which um, ones did y'all pick? Oh, I... Oh. I'm going to pick Sorry, I thought you all said library. <laughs> My bad. No. I did pick that one. I, I want to like take a book cart down the stairs, even though it would be a really bad idea. I, I'm going to choose the sisters. Oh, that's cute. My second oh. one would have been the, the couple in front of the sunset because the sunset's so pretty, but books. Doesn't it look like that scene from A Princess Bride when they're like, yes, and Buttercup are silhouetted? I swear, I thought that was a still from the film for a sec. <laughs> okay, so I got Sandy. It says, people may sometimes forget about you or overlook you, but that would be their mistake. You have a full and rich interior life and you have a surprising array of hidden talents. You can do just about anything, but sometimes you worry you haven't lived up to your potential. Wow. I feel seen. <laughs> <laughs> I am also Sandy. It turns out. <laughs> it turns out. Oh, so I got Laura. So did I, Darlene. Okay. <laughs> so what's the description for Laura? It's, uh, you are the matriarch. You're a little anxious. Yes. A little impulsive, but you are made of stronger stuff than most people realize. You can talk to anyone and always have a story to tell. You would do anything to protect the people you love. Oh, love that. <laughs> All right. First ever original BuzzFeed quiz. Yeah. <laughs> Heather can definitely add a uh, quiz making to her <laughs> list of many skills. We'll endorse your quiz making yes. expertise. I'm going to put it on my LinkedIn. Yes. yes. <laughs> Each episode, we ask whether our book passes the Bechdel test. The Bechdel test asks whether a work of features two female characters who talk to each other about something that doesn't involve men or boys. So, does it pass? Heck yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like flying colors. <laughs> it passes so well, and I love it because... <laughs> yes, like, it's not a technical pass. It Page one, pass. it passes. Yeah. <laughs> like. 
girls talking about girls hanging out with women. Yes. <laughs> Mostly girl characters. It's great. Yeah. And just even like talking about their position in the world, their aspirations. I'm thinking back to like that scene of when they're talking amongst themselves, like the sisters. And even though they do bring up boys and men and their husbands, it's still about how they feel about certain things. It's still about their own like personal like aspirations and how far they've come in their own personal journey that it doesn't really feel like it's about the men. It's Mm -hmm. really about themselves. Even the way that the three other ones try to get Sophia kind of back to who she is because she went back to Dominican Republic, fell in love with um, one of her cousins. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And he was very like sexist and was trying to like revert Sophia back into like into someone that just like obeyed him and like pretty much tried to yeah, he limit her personal worst. liberties. Yeah, he was the worst. Her sisters were um, like, girl, this is not who you are. Yeah. Stand yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> and just the way that they devised to like kind of get them broken up, even just that. Like this book definitely passes the Bechtel test. Well, that's it for this episode of These Books Made Me. Join us next time when we'll discuss a book where you can only stay in a world if you exchange your eyeballs for buttons. If you think you know which book we're tackling next, drop us a tweet. We're at PGCMLS on Twitter and hashtag These Books Made Me.